Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self care. So, to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Ooh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. This podcast is part of the 76ers Podcast Network. Search 76ers Podcast wherever you get your pods. Hi, this is Tom McGinnis. Over the course of 25 years of calling 76ers games on the radio here in Philadelphia, I've met hundreds of people. It's one of my favorite things about the job. From courtside conversations to filling time with a visit in a hotel lobby, getting to know folks around the game of basketball has always been a treat. This is Tom's Talks, my new podcast. Tipping things off in a first episode, I talked to a longtime friend. Former Sixers center Todd McCulloch, a fan favorite, the big man from Winnipeg, Canada, also at one point joined me on the radio. Here's our conversation. Well, Todd, thank you for joining us. First of all, how are you doing? What, what's quarantine look like uh, outside Seattle and in the McCulloch house? Uh, we're, we're getting used to kind of a, a new normal here. So we're learning how to, how to homeschool. And we've got a, uh, got a sixth grader and a fourth grader. So we're learning how to be sixth grade and fourth grade teachers. We're doing the best we can with that. And uh, we're having lots of, lots of family time together. And, and uh, everybody gets to, uh, uh, we got a lot of movie, movie nights together. So they're kind of learning about my movie tastes. And I'm watching a lot of uh, Pixar, Marvel uh, movies. And, uh, you know, my wife is getting some of her picks in there as well. So we're learning about each other's movie tastes um, and uh, spending a lot of time together. But, uh, but we're, we're getting through. If I remember having visited your house once when Seattle was still in the NBA, you had a huge movie room with, I mean, chairs that the, I think the Seahawks played the front, the linemen of the Seahawks could have sat there. Is that still where you guys watch your movies? Uh, some, sometimes. Yeah, I was in there last night. It's a, it's, it's a comfortable place to, uh, to watch movies, but uh, mainly we're just in the, the family room is now kind of connected to the kitchen. And so that's kind of where we, where we congregate and that's kind of our family space. So that the media room sometimes, but most of the time, it's just the TV kind of in the kitchen family room area. You have a beautiful home. I remember when we visited, we were with the TV crew of uh, what is now NBC Sports Philadelphia. And your garage is a three-story garage, and that's where you had a lot of the machines. And we went to one level after another. 
but you were kind enough to uh, treat us with Subway. We had some uh, catered food there, and yeah. our Aquila, our, our good friend and the great producer of Sitch's Television, um, said, and your house looks like Villanova's gym. It's got wide panel pine. It's gorgeous, as I said. And, and JR said, uh, geez, Todd, I'm surprised with how nice your, your house is that your neighbors are so close. And you let <laughs> me go, that's the garage. <laughs> you, uh, I remember that. That was a, that was a funny moment. So we're, we're fortunate to have some space here to not be uh, on top of each other. Right. So Washington was one of the first places in the United States where COVID-19, the coronavirus, started out there in Kirkland uh, with that with that nursing home situation, was that kind of wild that it started in, in your region of the country? Yeah, it was uh, really hit home literally just to see what was going on in, in China and then to hear about some of the European countries and then to have some of the first cases here in Seattle was, uh, was very uh, alarming. And uh, just to see what was going on um, in, in the Kirkland area. And uh, fortunately, I think our, our governor, you know, took things very seriously right from the beginning and instituted some pretty tough, tough measures. And, it, you know, it's been tough ec economically for a lot of people. Um, but what I think it's done is it's curtailed some of that exponential growth that other cities are seeing. And so I think Seattle kind of went down into a lockdown situation a little bit uh, earlier than some other people. So while we, we still have increasing numbers, it doesn't seem to be happening on an exponential level. And I think that's because of some of the early steps that were taken in this in this area. Right. So you went to the University of Washington, and so did 76ers rookie Matisse Bible. And I know you watched him play at UW and are a big fan. Tell us a little bit about your impressions of Matisse so far and what it was like to watch him play as a Husky out there in the Pacific Northwest. No, I, I haven't met Matisse, but I already love the guy. I know, I know people that know him. And they spoke extremely highly of him and just watching him, even if you didn't know him as a person, just to see that kind of effort and how hard he plays that I, I loved watching him play. And he just had this, uh, this quiet intensity to just get it, get it done. And he never quit on any play ever. And so when I heard that Philadelphia drafted him, I was thrilled because I knew that you guys would fall in love with him. I knew how hard he worked and how much uh, the fans would appreciate that effort. And I also had heard from people what a great guy he was and, and how much people would like him personally. So I thought that was a great fit. And, and I was happy that the Sixers got such a, such a great teammate. And it doesn't surprise me at all that, he's, uh, uh, that, that people really like the way, the way he plays. So I'm looking forward to meeting him one of these times when he, when he comes back to Seattle. And, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying watching him play because I think he's phenomenal and he just has incredible instincts. And you combine those instincts and those gifts with effort and it makes, a, makes for quite a, quite a difficult player to score on. And like you, he's got great, great character and he's a wonderful person to have around our team and, and our organization. What was it like for you to play at the University of Washington? You grew up in Winnipeg. You play at, at UW for Bob Bender. And what was it like at the time? I'm assuming it was the Pac-10, Pac-12, to play in that league. And at what point did you realize that you might end up being an NBA player? Uh, it, took, it took a little while. Uh, I, I loved playing here. It was a big adjustment for me coming from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, I believe I was the first player to go directly from um, a Manitoba high school to a D1 college. And so it's kind of an uncharted path. And I was not prepared for, uh, for the weight room, for the fitness, for the, the athleticism. 
uh, and it was a huge adjustment. So if you saw me in those uh, in those early days, you wouldn't have thought I would have been much of a college player at all. But I uh, but I stuck with it and uh, ended up having a very good experience uh, at the University of Washington. I, I redshirted my first year, and that was a, a challenging year for me. But I uh, I came a long way. And I think it was my freshman year, which would have been after my redshirt year, we went to Michigan. And at the time, they had two two players from the Fab Five left. They had Jimmy King and uh, Ray Jackson. And um, we were coming off a, a tough season the year before, 9-18, trying to get a winning record, trying to get some postseason, postseason play. And it came right down to the wire. And I think we got a shot blocked at the buzzer, and we lost by one. And I, while I was not happy that we, we lost, I was happy that we were competitive against a team that had some prestige. Uh, and I think I had 12 points and 10 rebounds. And I think at that point, I thought, okay, I, I just had a double-double against this Michigan team that a lot of people still know. So, you know, maybe, maybe I have a chance to be a decent college player if I can get a double-double against a high-profile team like this against a tough opponent. And that's, I think, when I started. The coaches always believed in me. I think they could see the potential that I had. Uh, but for me, I think that that made me realize that if, if I keep going, you know, maybe I can uh, have an impact at the college level. And when you got drafted to the NBA, what did that moment feel like? Uh, it was a little bit bittersweet. I was just talking to a, a friend of mine about that. I mean, I think it's it's all about your your perspective. And and I ended up uh, going on to a good college career. And I think I, I wanted to be a first round pick. I think anyone that... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously an honor to get drafted. And now there's only maybe 60 people that are drafted each year and, and on this planet. And it's a huge honor. And I, but I think my expectations and my hope was to be a first round pick. Uh, and I, I thought that maybe I'd done enough in my, in my four or five years at Washington to get one of those top 30 spots. That didn't happen. And so I was sort of uh, devastated. And I was uh, um, looking, looking back, I, I was very uh, upset. And, and it just wasn't a celebratory moment for me. And that, that came later. And uh, I had an assistant coach that had some champagne there to celebrate. And he could sort of see uh, that I wasn't in a celebratory mood. He said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to keep this for another time. We're going to celebrate later. And that moment did happen later in my career. And so I, I think I, I used that as a motivation. And uh, I ended up playing with Team Canada that summer with teammates like Steve Nash. And all of a sudden, that confidence that I felt like I had lost uh, was regained. I realized, you know what, I, I am a good basketball player and playing with somebody like Steve Nash that uh, he makes everybody look good. I started to believe in myself again and played well that summer and, and uh, ended up ended up uh, with a, a two-year contract with the Sixers. And we'll get into that, but I, you've shared over the years some of those stories about Nash after games, like meetings on the beach and the leadership that he showed and the the way he connected everybody. I know he's still involved with Team Canada. A little bit about Nash and your experience in the international game with him. Uh, the, the most unbelievable person, teammate, competitor guy. I mean, he's obviously a great basketball player. He's been a two-time NBA MVP. It doesn't get much uh, – there's, no, there's not a, a bigger accolade, I think, than being named the MVP of this amazing group of athletes, and he's done that twice. Um, but that's uh, he's even a better guy than that, which uh, he's just an amazing leader. And we were so much better with him. And not only were we better in the court, but we just had more fun off the court. I mean, we, we won a game in Puerto Rico and at center circle, we would get together as a team and uh, and thank the crowd for their support. And then Steve said, all right, when we get back to the hotel in San Juan, I want everyone in the, in the ocean. We're playing we're playing 500 and I'm going to pitch, you know. You guys are going to be on the ocean. It was just like, oh, this is great. We did our work. We won as a country. And now Steve's, Steve's going to be throwing the soccer ball to us in the, in the ocean in Puerto Rico. And then we would be ready to play the, the next day. But he really 
kept it fun and we'd be riding on a school bus and he'd be sitting on the luggage just strumming away on his guitar just like oh a campfire God. feel he would give up his first class seats on the plane to big guys like myself just 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 uh you know he was an unbelievable teammate what a great memory so you come to the sixers and larry brown was the coach iverson was on the team what was your initial reaction coming to philadelphia uh, I, I didn't know what to think, but uh, I was just excited to be part of an NBA uh, franchise, and and I had uh, met uh, met Coach Brown at the at the press conference, and then he was uh, in the pre Olympic tournament in in Puerto Rico as well, so I had a chance to get to know Coach Brown a little bit, um, and you know I met uh, Matt Geiger right away, and I met a bunch of the other guys, and I uh, Aaron McKee and Iverson and George Lynch and. <laughs> you know, Tyrone Hill, Theo Radler, just a great group of guys and, and I really like them right from the start. And people, people helped me. They, they helped me uh, defensively. They helped me with, with all the aspects that I was going to need to improve on to be an effective NBA player and, and no more than, than Coach Brown, who loves to coach and he loves to teach. And so being one of the young guys, you'd come in early and he would run us in two on two, three on three. So we would have a little mini practice before the real practice started. Um, and so he, I think he really enjoyed teaching and I was ready to learn, try and figure out how to, how to adapt to this NBA style game. They called you Dip fondly. What was the genesis behind that nickname, Dip? So my first NBA game was against the San Antonio Spurs and this was right after they had won the abbreviated 50 game season. And so we were there in San Antonio for the first game of that season. And that's when they received their rings. And so Coach Brown and Coach Popovich were, were good friends. And so Coach Brown said, hey, let's let's pay our respects and let's let's you know, this is where we want to be. So let's uh, let's honor these guys for the season they had last year and let's try and be that team uh, this year. And uh, so this is my this is my first NBA game. And here we are, you know, watching uh, San Antonio Spurs get their rings. And David Robinson is somebody that I looked up to as a youngster, someone with a lot of uh, I see number 50 there and uh, in behind you. And he wore number 50. I ended up wearing number 50. Right. Just thought he was a class act and had incredible skills and, and was a, a very well-rounded uh, person as well as being a great basketball player. So here I am now trying to guard him. And this was the old NBA rules where the, the defensive principles were a little bit different and some of the legal defense was different and you could really spread the floor. So David Robinson, you know, I think he was looking his chops when I get into the game and he said like ISO. So everybody just, the Red Sea parted and everybody went in the four corners of the baseline and it was just me trying to, trying to stay in front of David Robinson. It didn't go well for me. And uh, they ended up having a, a, a pretty good game. But I, I did go up strong, which for me wasn't necessarily dunking the basketball, but I went for a power two-hand layup. And I went up and I saw David Robinson's hands. And then I saw Tim Duncan's hands. And there's these four massive hands that were going to block me. And I thought, I got to do something. This power layup isn't going to work. So I just brought it down, did a little dip, 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 and then threw it up. And somehow... You know, I was trying to look like Jordan in the playoffs against, I think, Portland, or he had that incredible play. It didn't look like that, but somehow it avoided all four of those huge hands, went off the backboard and went in, and I was as shocked as anybody. And I looked at the bench, and I thought they would have been like, yeah, but they were all laughing, and they could have been like, you gave him the dip. What is this? You're the dip now. So now Aaron McKee is like, what is this? So that's how I, I got the nickname. I didn't realize it, but that's probably when Are You Kidding Me started. Uh, probably. That would, that would make sense. Yeah, that, I couldn't do that one again in a million years, but I knew I had to try something because going up for my power layup, not getting it done on those guys. 
And just to be clear, they gave me that when I was 50 some years ago. So I didn't steal your number. It just uh, it was a birthday gift from the 76ers. So what was it like playing with Iverson and traveling with Iverson? Because I remember those years, too. And, you know, how the, the fans, the autograph seekers were at the hotel. I mean, obviously with LeBron and Michael and like that. And, and on some level, it was the same thing. So what was it like from your perspective to travel with Allen Iverson? Oh, it was, it was fun. Uh, he was a, he was a riot. And so I always had, you know, uh, a disc man with, you know, back, back in the day, pre, pre iPod. And, and I, you know, I always had music to listen to, but I never wanted to do it because I didn't want to miss the Iverson show. And I didn't want to miss the jokes he was cracking and just how entertaining it was. So I didn't want to miss him. So I didn't use my music player very much at all. And I remember, you know, people would talk about him hanging out at Fridays when I first got to, to Philly. You know, Fridays. And I thought Fridays must be some happening club. And I found out that it's TGI Fridays and it was near the practice facility. So I went there with my Winnipeg friends and we're maybe a month or two into the season. And I'm with my Winnipeg friends. They can't believe I'm in the NBA. I can't believe I'm in the NBA. And Iverson is with his friends in the in the corner. And I think he, he went past my table to maybe use the restroom or something. And I'm still a little nervous and starstruck, even though we're teammates. I mean, he's just a larger-than-life personality, and, and just people want to be around him. And I was no different. And I said, Helen, I don't mean to bother you, but will you take a second here and maybe sign an autograph for my friends, maybe take a picture? And, and he was like, yeah, sure, I'll take a picture of your friends. I'll sign. But but who are you? And I go, what? And he's like, I got you, man. Don't be so gullible. And he's making fun of me in front of my friends. And uh, I'm like, uh, that's not funny, Alan. So uh, he was, he was cool. That's great. And then that team, of course, made it to the NBA finals eventually in 2000, 2001 season. And, you know, you didn't play that much, but there were injuries and you backed up to Kembe a little bit. What was your experience like, uh, playing in the NBA finals and that whole playoff run. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, uh, you know, kind of a dream come true to make it to the NBA finals. And I, I hadn't played uh, much leading up to, uh, to that uh, final series. I think I had uh, gotten in once in the Milwaukee series and I hadn't gotten in in the Indiana series. And I don't think I'd gotten into the Toronto series. So I kind of just assumed that I, I wouldn't get in, in the, uh, uh, in the series against Milwaukee. And I think there was a timeout where uh, Coach Brown drew up the play and I wasn't paying as much attention as I should have been. Uh, and it's just kind of a reminder for young guys to always be ready and be prepared. And I, I wasn't really listening as well as I should have been. And sometimes a coach at the beginning of a timeout will say, you know, target Geiger or target Tyrone. And then you're like, oh, I'm in the game. I better pay extra attention. Uh, but in this case, the substitution happened after the timeout. And I didn't think I could go up to coach and say, hey, coach. Yeah, can you run through that again? Yeah, I wasn't listening. I'm going to need you to draw up that play. So then I thought, you know, I should have gone to Eric Snow or somebody, and I said, what are we doing? But I just, you know, I thought most of my plays start with me on the right-hand side of the court behind the three-point line. So I'm just going to go there. And I can hear coach saying, no, Todd, not there. And so I'm like, well, maybe I'm supposed to be on the left side of the court. So I go to the left side of the court. And he says, no, Todd, not there. I'm like, I don't know where I'm supposed to be. I have to get this rebound. I don't care. So I, I for some reason – I knew the shot would be missed from whoever took it. And I crashed the boards and I pushed everybody out of the way. And I got the rebound because I had to make something positive happen. And then I laid it in and I got fouled. And I was like, okay, I had to make something positive. Or I, was, I was getting yanked out of this game. So then I was a little more uh, prepared for every timeout. And now we make it to the NBA Finals. Uh, and I just wanted to do the best I could. And I, I thought Shaq is better than me in every way. But I'm going to try and run hard. I'm going to try and beat him down the floor. I'm going to try and 
give that extra effort. And if and when he blocks me, I'm going to try and get it, and I'm going to try and go right back up with it. Um, so I just had an attitude of, of just trying to do uh, – just try to play within myself and do the things that I do and try and do them as best I could. And uh, winning game one was a huge thrill and I think surprised a lot of people. And unfortunately, we just couldn't, uh, couldn't keep that momentum going. And uh, the Lakers had a lot, of, a lot of clutch players. And so I think we, we were in a lot of those games and it came down to some key situations. And whether it was Derek Fisher or Robert Ory or Rick Fox, they had a lot of veterans that calmly knocked down big shots. And, uh, and uh, it was a little tough to, to rebound from, from that type of uh, maturity that they had. We'll have more with Todd McCulloch in a moment. But during these unprecedented times, here's a reminder that Wendy's is here for you. Wendy's knows cravings can happen anywhere, including wherever you are right now. So they've got your back with delivery. Get all your favorites delivered to the comfort of wherever you are right now without having to move a muscle other than your thumbs. Get your go-to meal delivered today. Now, back to more of my chat with Todd McCulloch. Lo and behold, you go back to the NBA Finals on the 0-2 Nets team that faced the Lakers with Jason Kidd and that whole crew. What was that experience like? And then you're back in the Finals against Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, you know, it was all great except having to go up against Shaquille O'Neal again in the Finals. Um, but I was obviously thrilled to be on a, another team to go back to the Finals. I'd had such a great t- year, uh, such a great time the year before. And then to go back with these guys, I think many of them, it was their, their first Finals appearance. and. And, uh, you know, Jason Kidd was our was our leader and uh, we had some really good draft picks that year. And, and we all just kind of came together. A new offense had put into place and uh, we had a lot of uh, a lot of movement. And I was a starter that year, so I got more minutes. And so I, I think it, it meant a lot to 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 feel a little bit more a part of the team in terms of production uh, on the court. Um, and unfortunately, the finals didn't go well. We didn't get that. Uh, we didn't get a win in the finals. We were swept for nothing. Um, but we considered it a, a successful uh, season to to win the East, and unfortunately, that Lakers team was was just as dominant at the end of that postseason as they as they were the year before. I remember a story you shared where you were in the center jump circle with Shaquille O'Neal, and he was telling you, I'm assuming, just prior to the ball going up for an important finals game, about how one of his cars was retrofitted so he could fit in it. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I remember, uh, we had lost one of the games, uh, in New Jersey and, uh, it was, we were leaving the, well, we lost all those finals games. And so we now we're in the tunnel and the valet has brought my car around, which was a 1997 Porsche at the time. And Shaq was getting on the team bus and he sees me with this door open of this little Porsche about to get in. And, you know, I'm still, you know, kind of starstruck a little bit. I mean, Shaq is literally larger than life. And, and I have, you know, a lot of respect for him and that whole team. And he said, Todd, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm just going to get in my car and I'm going to drive home. He's like, that's not your car. Have, the valet has made a mistake. Have him go get your car. You don't fit in that car. And I was like, that's, that's my car, Shaq. I, I got I to go. And I get in the car and I drive away because I don't know what to say. Okay. And nights later, we play them again, and we're jumping center circle. And right at the tip, okay. be careful. And I'm thinking, be careful. Like, what, what does he mean, be careful? He's like, be careful driving home in that little car. I don't want to get hurt. And I was like, man, you're cool. So just uh, he was looking out for my safety, and he just thought it was a little unsafe for me to be driving this tiny little Porsche. And eventually, I figured that out and uh, and traded it in. So I did have the jump ball thing uh, correct, but it came on the on the back end. And now yeah. you get traded. You get traded back to the Sixers. And that's when the injury, you're, you're having pain in your feet and you end up being diagnosed with something that your mother had. And that was, if I'm not mistaken, three French doctors, Charcot, 
Marie Tooth syndrome and you had a foot neuropathy that ended your career prematurely. That had to be an incredible year. I believe 29 years old, uh, a really tough thing to handle. How, how did you get through that? And tell us a little bit more. Uh, it was you know, devastating to, to have uh, a neuropathy and, and to have my feet not work the way that they uh, should or the way that they did um, and to, you know, to make it to the NBA level. And then, you know, my confidence wasn't great when I, when I started. And then after being in the NBA for a few years and, and having some success and, um, and, you know, making it to the finals as a starter, I started to think like, you know what, I think I, I think I do belong and I think I can play in this league. And I think I was uh, improving. And, and gaining confidence. And then just as that was happening is when my foot problems started and I, and I couldn't play anymore. And so it was, it was devastating in a lot of ways just to feel like I was, I was getting my feet under me and then to have them uh, fail on me. And I just, uh, you know, it was, it was a very difficult uh, time. And I think the, the thing that helped get me out of it was, was being able to work with you and, and to have Billy King give me an opportunity to jump on the radio and it really kind of brought me out of a funk and it, it made me realize I was still part of the Sixers family. And I was, I, I had now the, the players as my old family and the broadcasters and the TV guys as my new family. And uh, over the next five years, I think it really helped me sort of transition out of, uh, you know, just that, that headspace of just really feeling, feeling bad for myself and feeling down and then to, uh, to kind of bring me out of that and, and still be a part of the family. So it, it was, uh, it meant a lot to me to, to spend that time working with you. And I appreciate you're great, and you're a great analyst. As I say, sometimes players don't realize what an expert you are. I mean, just because, again, you're experienced and you're a huge, uh, intelligent person with a great basketball IQ, uh, and that you lend so much to, to the broadcast. And then you actually, out there in, in the Pac-12, you, I believe you did some studio work for the, for the University of Washington for their games, correct? Uh, it was for, for the whole Pac-10. It was uh, through Fox Sports when they were the uh, you know the station that was covering the, the Pac-10, and I did some pregame and some halftime and some postgame analysis for them in the studio uh, for a season when I when I first got back here. And then I think Fox Sports was absorbed or maybe became uh, a different affiliate, and uh, and so I hadn't uh, done anything with them after that. But it was it was kind of fun while it lasted, and I think I had the confidence to do that because of the time that we'd spent together and. And uh, hopefully some of the improvements I was able to make in, in broadcasting. And you, you really do. You see the game in a different way. And, and I really had blinders on when I, when I played at the center position. And, and while I think that, that helped me in some ways, I, I had a pretty narrow focus. If I get the ball close to the basket, I need to go up strong and I need to finish it. Um, but I think when you're up there uh, with you, you see the whole court. You see the plays develop. And, and you really see it, I think, maybe more from a point guard's point of view of, just the way the game is, is moving. And I think uh, I almost wish that I'd had that experience before. I think it would have made me a better player just to really understand where I, where I fit in and not just have that, that, those, uh, that narrow perspective. Um, but I think when you're, when you're in the game, it's a little different than when you're, when you're watching. But I did see the game with a different pair of eyes, and I think it helped me understand the game better. Your condition, this foot neuropathy, doesn't go away. How are you doing now? Um, I'm doing a little bit better. So I've, I've constantly uh, been trying to find ways to uh, reduce the neuropathy. And so I've done uh, all sorts of laser treatments and I've, I've had, I'd had surgery and I've, <clears throat> I did some stem cells uh, injections to try and regrow uh, some of the myelin cysts around the nerves and 
and um, you know different different laser treatments and and um, some of some of those things have have helped and it's helped to uh, improve some of those symptoms and reduce them and and it maybe helps some of those uh, nerves uh, regenerate and so I, I still have uh, neuropathy in both feet but I think I think some of those things have been turned down a little bit on the knob and so I I, uh, I'm a little bit more comfortable than I think I was when I was first diagnosed. And so I'm continuing, you know, it's been quite a while and there's been some, some medical uh, advancements in, in science and, and treatments and things like that. So I'm always uh, uh, looking for ways to uh, reduce it further and, and try and eliminate it uh, completely. But, uh, but it's, uh, it's at a better place than it was, which, which uh, I think makes me a better, better father and being able to be on my feet a little more and and play with my kids and just be in a better headspace and not always be distracted by, uh, by the constant nerve pain. Good for you, glad for you. Now, we, as you see, uh, we're right by all these pinball machines and as a professional athlete, uh, having the game taken away, you have to find something to compete at to sate that competitive bug. You found, of all things, pinball. Tell us why and, and what that's all about. Uh, it's a great, great question. It's something that I've always enjoyed ever since I was a kid. I mean, at the roller skating rink as a junior high kid or the ice skating rink, or if I was getting my, my 7-Eleven Slurpee, 7-Eleven would have pinball machines, or it was the 80s and there was arcades everywhere. So if I had a quarter or two in my pocket, I was putting it in a pinball machine. So I think that was already in me. Uh, and then when I, uh, when I became a net, I started uh, uh, collecting pinball machines and that collecting continued when I came back to the Sixers. Um, and so I'd always enjoyed the game. I, did, I wasn't really aware of a competitive uh, avenue for it. I just, it was just something that I loved to do and I loved to share it with people. And then uh, a friend of mine, uh, Rick Prince from, uh, from Philadelphia, there was a, uh, a guitar store in, I think it was in, oh, somewhere not too far from me. And I went in there to try out this pinball machine and the guy said, uh, and I said, and I realized that it's as much a social thing too. I love to to play pinball with people or compete against people, and I want to share it. And um, so I, he's this guy is gonna gonna turn on this pinball machine so I can play. And I said, do you want to play with me? Do you want to play doubles? And he's like, nah, it's not even my machine. My friend Rick is crazy. He lives down the road and he's got like fifteen of these in his house. And I said, what games is he? He's like, I don't know. Do you want me to call him? Hey, Rick, some, uh, some tall guy in here uh, wants to know what pinball machines you have. So he runs down the line, and it was basically the same titles that I had. And Rick is like me, and he, he wants to play with other people. It's more fun. And so he said, hey, do you guys want to come to my house right now and play? And the guy's like, well, I got to work. I'm, I'm at my job here. How about you, tall guy? Do you want to go to Rick's? I'm like, yeah, this Rick guy sounds awesome. So I go to Rick's house, and we play for the next three hours. And at the end of it, it was like, I don't want this to sound weird, but I really enjoy it. I'm like, do you want to have a play date at my house tomorrow and come play my pinball machine? And he and I have been really good friends uh, ever since. And so he introduced me to the world of competitive pinball. And ironically, uh, Pittsburgh uh, is kind of where a lot of those uh, world-class competitions take place. And so he introduced me to the world of competitive pinball and I was, I was hooked. It was taking this thing that I enjoyed and then being able to have it naturally keep score. Um, it allowed me to, to itch a little bit of that competitive bug, but also in a really fun environment where it's almost like your opponents are not necessarily helping you, but they're kind of cheering you on in a sense, and there's a mutual respect, and, and we're all just kind of against the machine uh, together. So I think I like the fact that it's uh, um, everyone is kind of kind of rooting for the other people, and there's a mutual respect, and so we are keeping score. Um, it's pretty it's pretty classy. I like it. And you you purchased a few over the years, as we can see, and they they never lose their value. In talking to you in years past, there's like a little subculture, if you will, 
uh, of people that own machines and you're, you've become a big part of that, right? Yeah, it's a great community, and um, and there's different communities around the around the country. People are into different things, and I've I've got a group of uh, car collectors that I meet with here on on Bainbridge Island, and they're amazing, and I love them. Um, sometimes in in the car collecting community, it's like, okay, you can come over or not, or we'll go to car, and you can look at my car, and you can tell me how great it is. You can't sit in it. You sure as heck can't drive it. Um, but I just want you to tell me like how awesome my car is. And the pinball community seems to be like, hey, you're into pinball. I'm into pinball. You need to come over. We need to play my game. I don't know you, but I like you already because you're into this game. And so I feel like it's this uh, common, uh, it's like a little bit of a campfire that kind of brings people around. And as long as you're, uh, as long as you're not a jerk, basically, you're, uh, you're welcome. And uh, it's, it just seems to be this pretty open group of uh, pretty harmless people that kind of just want to have fun. And they, maybe they grew up in pizza places or, or pool halls or arcades and, and really a bunch of kids that refuse to grow up. And I'm one of them. So I could say that. And uh, so I think that's what I like is just uh, how, how inviting the community is and how helpful they are with their skill set. And so we kind of band together and, uh, and we get it done, try and help each other keep the machines running. Well, Todd, I so much appreciate your time. You're still one of my all time faves. You're a great guy. We wish you the best to Jana and your family and certainly during this time and throughout the rest of the rest of these weeks and months going forward. No, thanks, Tom. And, and uh, you're my favorite as well. And it was an honor to, uh, to be able to uh, work with you and, and um, maybe someday we can work together again. All right, Todd. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Tom's talks with me, Tom McGinnis on the 76ers podcast network. Check for new episodes every weekend. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Monogram at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build.